to Jesus Christ. They felt they could climb any mountain. They could carry any burden. They could overcome any temptation. And they could do that after Barnabas had been there. And he spoke to them and exhorted them and applied the word of God to them. He was our son of encouragement. Thirdly, we find in the letters of the Apostle Paul, time and again, he uh, speaks words of encouragement to the recipients of his letters. With one exception, every single one of Paul's letters begins with a great word of thanks, of praise to God for all that God has done in the churches that Paul is writing to. And he tells the Christians in Rome and in Corinth and in Colossae and Ephesus and Philippi, he tells them, whenever I think of you, I thank God for you. And I'm thanking God for you all the time. I've got you always in my heart. And I pray to God for you constantly. And every time I'm praying for you, my, my heart naturally turns to thanksgiving for all you are and for all that you've done. I remember without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and your patience of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of the love that you have for all the saints. I think of your fellowship in the gospel and, and he's praising them in every church except one and that's the church in Galatia because that church was abandoning the gospel. It was adding to the gospel works like circumcision, food laws, going back to Jerusalem three times a year and for the feasts and all the paraphernalia and clutter of the old covenant that had been fulfilled. And there were people there, the Judaizers who were saying to people, you, if you really want to be blessed by God, you've got to do these things. But uh, he can't say, I thank God for you. Because they were wobbling and they were falling. But that's all the more striking that the other churches and the other letters he writes. He's at pains to express these qualities. His debt to them. His thankfulness for them. He's so encouraged by the graces they show and the faith. From them then the word of God sounds out through all the surrounding county and the countryside and He's so glad. I thank God for you, he tells them. Sometimes we're afraid to say that. I thank God for you. I praise God for you. We're so reluctant to acknowledge one another's qualities. But Paul is doing that. He says uh, he thanks God that they're like this. And he thanks God that they're like that. And he thanks God that they do this and that they don't do that. And he encourages them by rehearsing the graces that God has given to them by the Holy Spirit in the exercise of, of their fruit in his life. Fourthly, we see uh, God's encouragement in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is called in the New Testament by the word Paraclete. You know that? And uh, sometimes the word is translated comforter, sometimes advocate. But really the word 
means the encouragement. Because it's the same word as the word that's in our text. And the Holy Spirit is sent to uh, just ordinary congregations like ourselves to give inspiration. To give purpose, a sense of purpose. To give courage. To make God's people feel we can do it. To make them feel we can stand. We can overcome. This word, um, paraclete, it is so interesting because there was in the Roman army people whose specific calling it was. Why they were members of the Roman army, why they'd been hired, was to build up the morale of the troops. And they were called by exactly this name, paraclete. And so before the great battle, the soldiers were lined up then in the fields. And uh, these men, these orators, were called to come and make a speech. And really to psych up the soldiers before battle. To feel they could do it. They feel whatever the opposition, the Bretons covered in woad and paint and chanting and shouting and looking so wild... They could overcome them. They could win. They had that inspiration, that gift. Today you have it in the coach, don't you? That uh, Warren is asked at half-time when uh, the Welsh team are, are, are low and losing to speak to the, the, the men, the, the team, before they go back for the second half. And we are to think of the Holy Spirit and his presence with us as our coach. Uh, you remember in the 17th century, the new commonwealth that uh, the roundheads uh, uh, built up, Cromwell's armies. And uh, Cromwell always insisted that the great preachers come and preach them. And when Bunyan was a boy, he heard wonderful preaching. Um, from the year 18, this year of 18 years of age to 20, he was there and he had preaching every week. Uh, they had Baxter and they had Owen and they had Manton. And uh, part of their function was to impress upon these men that they were fighting the Lord's battle, that they were fighting for freedom and, and justice, and that because it was the Lord's battle, they could overcome. And you had the same thing in Scotland with uh, John Knox and uh, the Army of the Congregation, as it was called. These people had it drilled into them that the battle was the Lord's and that they had this faction, function. They were, um, they were the paracletes. They were the encouragers of the men in battle. They, they built up the, the morale of the, of the troops and they persuaded them that they could overcome. And in various wars, that's always the case. Men like Nelson and Montgomery and, and Eisenhower and Peyton and uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, these men had the same quality, you remember. Nelson, at a judicial time, they are going, in the Battle of Trafalgar, they are going to lock in combat with the vastly superior numbers of the Spanish fleet. 
and uh, there's a, uh, a burst of inspiration that Nelson sends up a message in the flags overhead. Um, and he says, England expects every man this day to do his duty. And it's uh, a thrill through the whole fleet and they cheer them. Um, they have had this message. Uh, Churchill in the war. Well, um, I, I was told about it and I think I can remember it but I can probably just remember being told about it that I would sit on my father's lap and then in the night we would switch on the radio and we would listen to Churchill speaking his so-called artillery of words. Um, we should be able to give these gentry a warm reception both in the air and on the ground if they reach it in any condition to continue the dispute. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and with growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender. Well, we had hardly anything to fight with. Dad's army was taking on the, the SS. And yet, uh, after they'd heard uh, Churchill speak, they felt they could. They were somehow invincible. What Churchill himself felt, that they were walking with destiny. And so the next day you would walk down the street and you would go to the bus stop and you would say, the people that were there going to work with you and the first thing he would ask, did you hear Churchill last night? Now that's why the Holy Spirit has been sent to the congregation. He's been sent for the encouragement of the Church of God. And you know that his work is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to the grandeur and the magnificence and the omnipotence of Almighty Christ. And that's the encouragement. We endure as seeing him who is invisible. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so the Holy Spirit shows us the grandeur, the unflappability, the omnicompetence of our Lord Jesus. That's how he builds us up. And if we are spiritual men and women, that's how we will build one another up too by uh, reminding us that we have illimitable access to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that can help us enormously that we're not facing then the challenge of this coming week by ourselves. So, there are these great facts. There are the New Testament letters. There are the letter to the Hebrews, the word of encouragement. There is Barnabas, the son of consolation. There's the Apostle Paul, and he writes his letters, and he makes sure then that he encourages the people to whom he's writing. And then there's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, then, is the Spirit who encourages us. And then, on a more um, exalted plane, throughout his earthly ministry, God the Father took pains to encourage God the Son. You can recall that at uh, great critical points in his ministry, how 
God the Father takes specific measures to bring encouragement and strength and comfort and consolation to Jesus. Remember his baptism. His baptism is the initiation then of his great ministry. Uh, It's the threshold of his mission to Galilee and Jerusalem. And the Lord speaks words from heaven. He says to him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He's saying, son, I love you. I'm so pleased with the 30 years that you've given to Nazareth. And what a blameless life you've lived. You've been my spokesman. You've been my lovely son in all the years in the carpenter's home there. It was a great word of encouragement because his family didn't understand what he was doing and what he was there for. And then the same way as the ministry comes to a close two or three years later, at the transfiguration, he says the same thing. He sends Moses and he sends Elijah and, and they are there and they are meeting with Jesus and they're talking about the, the death that he is going to accomplish in, in Jerusalem. And God speaks, this is my beloved son. He says, I'm so pleased, I love him so much and listen to my son. And then again at Gethsemane, um, He sees his son in agony, sweating drops of blood. And you know what happens. The angels gather before him to receive their instructions. And he says to one angel, go. Go and encourage your Lord. Rabbi Duncan said, after seeing Jesus, that the one he wanted to see most of all in heaven was the angel who encouraged his master. So here are these relationships of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And part of the dynamics of those relationships is the the ministry of encouragement that they give to one another. And surely that's a great model then for us. And I, uh, I want to encourage you again at this point. The basic fact of Christian pedagogy, of dads and mums raising children, raising Christian children, is to encourage your children in every way, every virtue and every sweet thing they've said and done and every attempt they've made to say sorry and that you encourage them. You encourage them in in every way. Fathers don't embitter your children or they will be discouraged, Paul says. He's very concerned that our children are not discouraged by impossible standards and rebukes that we issue to them. Well, now then, here are examples in the Bible. When did you last say to a brother or a sister? Um, I'm so glad that God in his providence has brought us together. I'm so pleased. You, you, you help me so much. Simple words of acknowledgement. To make them feel they belong. To make them feel that what they're doing is worthwhile. We have this massive emphasis in the New Testament on the ministry of encouragement. And it's an obligation that every one of us will never escape from it. When people come at the end of our lives to to speak words of encouragement 
to us. Well, we will, we will, with our whispers, and we will say, I've always loved you, and I've been so glad that I have you. That if we want to live lives of a New Testament pattern, we will be men and women of encouragement. All right? That's my first half. And now my second half, I want to say something about the meaning of the ministry of encouragement. What is God saying to us in this uh, exhortation? In Let us encourage one another. Verse 25, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, firstly, let everyone keep a watch on what you communicate to other people. On what you say. Because uh, so often uh, words of frustration arise. There's a put-down. And it slips out. There's the clever retort. There's the laugh. There's the word that damns because there's only just uh, faint praise. You can even hear a Christian say, I put him in his place. I hope none of you will ever say that let alone do it, glorying in your shame. Let no filthy communication proceed out of your mouth. You all know that verse, and you're all conscious of it. Don't we? Ah, we don't want dirty words to, to be said by us. But it goes on then, but rather good to the use of edifying. Then he says... Um, Let everything be mixed with salt. He's talking about holiness and grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't he? It's a tremendous challenge then. Not just that um, we don't speak idly and foolishly and uselessly. Certainly not in a filthy way. But uh, does it edify? Does it strengthen? Does it do something positive for the person to whom we are speaking or writing? Does it build him up? Does it inspire him? Does it comfort him? Does he feel he really belongs? Does he feel that his contribution is worthwhile? Is the word that we communicate to other people, does it build up the believer? What a challenge that is. How it ought ought to search us uh, tonight. The challenge that in every encounter, in every relationship, we make it our business to encourage. So that after we've parted, uh, the person who leaves us uh, goes away feeling better, feels more inspired. And that is the demand the Word of God makes upon us. Not simply negatively that uh, filthy communications don't come from our mouths, but positively the edifying word. Secondly, he says, uh, consider how you may spur one another on. Verse 24. All right. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good works. You you consider it. You, You consider how. How now can I encourage that person uh, to, to go on doing what they, they do so wonderfully? 
the, the good works they do. <laughs> we we're to think about one another. Our problems and our, our needs. Uh, we consider ourselves so often, don't we? But do we consider other people? Do we know this evening roughly where each one in the fellowship stands? What their, what their position is? I'm not speaking now of uh, some inquisitive prying into each other's lives and some censorious attitude of, of criticism. But we are aware of the needs that there are in the lives of individuals and families in this congregation. Do we know tonight who in the congregation is being discouraged? Do we know who in the church is close to giving up? in various directions? Do we know who's weak? Do we know who's feeble-minded? Do we know where the problems are? Do we know where the risks are? Do we know where all of us stand? Do we know what the real needs are in the congregation? You say, well, the elders and the deacons know. Well, perhaps they do. But do the rest of us know? to consider one another? Do we have any awareness of where the sorrows are? What particular dates are difficult dates for one another? Where the dangers are? Who's losing heart? Who's stopping coming? Who's fallen by the wayside? Do we know? Consider, he says. You've got to spur one another on. You've got to view other people as better than yourselves, you've got to strengthen one another. Well, consider, he says, use your minds about, no, not just how your stocks and shares are doing and how things are going in college with you, but uh, how you can encourage other students. Let, let's uh, invite them round. Let's bring them in. Let's uh, uh, have an evening together and so on. Are we need, aware how uh, people need encouragement? So we're told in the Bible, watch our mouths and our communication and consider one another to spur one another on. And then thirdly, we are called upon by God to take part in a ministry of consolation, to comfort one another. To know who needs consoling. There were these Hebrew Christians and um, oh, they had real tremendous problems with men like Saul of Tarsus out to get them and, and stone them. And so uh, you Christians, you are, verse 33, to stand side by side with those who are being cruelly treated. They're in the stocks and, and you stand alongside them in the stocks and you look out if anyone dares to throw a rock or a, a dead dog or dirt at, at this 
my beloved brother or sister. You stand side by side when they're cruelly treated. And others, verse 34, are in prison. So you, you, you go to the prison and you show sympathy with them and love for them. You know how Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he says, comfort one another with these words, he says. Well, we have a ministry and our, our ministry is a verbal ministry, isn't it? So often people have got money and they've got creature comforts, but they just need kind words, loving words, understanding words, supportive words. There are some people who are being chastised by God. They are the children of God, but they're, they're knowing the rod of God on them for some reason. God knows, and they are fainting, and they are weary, because God's correction is not easy to bear. Well, now are we able to move in with words of encouragement to prevent them wilting? To stop them giving up altogether. You know the apostle speaks of uh, some Christians. And he says the outward man is perishing. Our, our physical bodies and our mental state. We are, are perishing. The, the burden seems so heavy to bear. There's great emotional toll that we are paying. Well, are we aware of those in the church? Do we bring them to God in prayer and in providence when we meet them? We, we have sweet words to say to them. People lack assurance. You know what I say to you who lack assurance? Can you say... I'm not sure if I know him. But if I knew him, I'd be safe. Can you say that? I don't know if I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But I know if I did know him as my Lord and Savior, I'd be absolutely safe for time and eternity. Now, only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian thinks like that. So that you have a, a hope and a longing. We say words of encouragement. Fourthly, we can encourage one another by encouraging them to take pride in their high position. I'm thinking of the beginning of the letter of James and uh, that first chapter and the ninth verse there. Here's a brother and he's described in the authorized version in a, in a way we immediately understand a brother of low degree. It doesn't mean he's got an unclassified degree at the university, of course. It means that he's a simple man. All right, he, he barely can read. He's never married, lives by himself, he comes to church there, he doesn't have a lot to say, he's not eloquent in any way, he doesn't have much personality, he doesn't have, he hasn't made a success of his life and he's, he's prone to think, well, they, they won't miss me. 
Well, now, here's a vocation we have to make that person feel good. <laughs> to make him feel important. All right? Um, James actually says in the authorized version to make him feel proud. That he's got something to boast about. That he really matters. And it's not anything in, in him at all. But that he's proud of Jesus. And that Jesus is his Lord and Savior. And he's been his shepherd. And the Lord is my shepherd. He can say that. And he's proud about that. And he boasts about the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't tell him you're special. You're beautiful. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? You don't encourage self-love in the man. But you, you show him his wonderful high position in grace. His status now. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. You remind him of God's love for him. God's choice of him. God sent his son to the cross for him. Christ dying for him. Christ whispering his name in heaven into his father's ears. God protecting him and keeping him. The Holy Spirit indwelling him. God works everything together for this brother of low degree. For his good. And that one day God is going to reward him. Let him take pride in that. Let him boast in that. Let him feel good about that. God wants that. Remember how the, the Lord Jesus spoke to these young disciples. At the beginning of their ministries. Went up a mountain and he sat down. And he sat down and he began to teach them. And he said to them. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Us? You're speaking to the wrong bunch here. And it's put so emphatically in the original. Humice, you are the salt of the earth. And they have no qualifications. They were in the fishing business because their fathers had been before them. Or they were working in an office collecting taxes. They never proved themselves. They hadn't preached any sermons. Um, They had very inadequate views of who Jesus was and what the kingdom of God was. They were deeply flawed human beings. They wanted to nuke a village that had rejected their master. Jesus speaks to them. You know what you are? You are the salt of the earth. Well, we say it, don't we? We say it behind people's backs. Our estimation of them. They say, oh, isn't she a wonderful Christian? Isn't he a great child of God? Um, and when they're not in the prayer meeting, we pray for them and give thanks to God for them and remember them. Well, I suppose we are afraid of making them proud. But the Lord did it. The Lord didn't mind them being proud that they were ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, that they were washed in the blood of Christ, that all things are working together for their good, that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for them and he was going to take them. To himself. 
The apostle writes to the church at Colossae, and he says to them, you please the Lord in every way. Now, that's wonderful, isn't it? They, they, they wanted it. That was their desire. And here then, Christ, the apostle, says to them that the Lord is pleased with you. But he was going to say to them one day, well done, good and faithful servants. Now, that sort of thing is not going to lead to arrogance and having a big head. There's a legitimate sense of thankfulness that uh, God has helped you to run the race and finish the course and that there's a crown of righteousness lying there before you. Jesus spoke to some people, his disciples, and he said to them, I'm not going to call you my servants any longer. I'm going to call you my friends. Because you really matter to me. Peter, you're you're a rock to me. And I'm going to build my church on your testimony that I'm a Christ, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you find it again and again in Paul's letters that he does the same thing. He greets them by name. He tells them how much he appreciates them. He says, I love your steadfastness. Oh, well, that's an interesting word, isn't it? Steadfast. Well, we just hang in there. That's it. That's it, Paul says. You're being steadfast. Um, he, uh, he writes about their growth and their self-sacrifice. Um, well, we didn't know that. He talks about their faith and, and their hope. And he wants them to be aware of these graces because they are graces that God the Holy Spirit has created in them and is nurturing and is growing in them. They are the consequence of union with Jesus Christ. I come back again to how God the Father treats God the Son. And there's no doubt that on a human level, our Lord faced a lot of discouragement and the crisis that discouragement brings, just as we do today. And, you know, the devil will do all he can to make us feel useless and failures. The devil loves that. The devil said to Jesus, if you were the Son of God, you, would, you wouldn't be hungry like this. You would speak to these stones all over the desert, and they could, like that, become bread. That's what the devil says. But God the Father said, you're my beloved Son. And the Father, in the parable of the prodigal son, he could have sat by the fire and, you know, coolly, welcomed him back and gave him a, a place in uh, the servants' quarters and allocated his duties for the next day. He runs, he hugs, he kisses, he celebrates. My son was dead and he's alive again. My son was lost and he's found. God the Father doesn't want us to be overwhelmed with self-destruction and, and feelings of our own worthlessness. It's part of our ministry to tell fellow Christians, you really matter to God.
you really matter to us. You really matter to yourself because God loves you. Take pride in your high position, James says to this little man of low degree. You're nothing to your family. You're nothing to your neighbors. They see you walking past their window in the night. They're watching TV and it's 10 to 6 and, oh, he's off to church again. Old Joe. What you're doing is so worthwhile. What you're doing is so valuable for the church. We praise God when we think of you. And you say it. You say it. Not artificially, but as providence directs and when opportunities arise. And we look for them. That's what our Lord did. That's what the Apostle did. He made them feel that they were loved in a lonely world where there was a lot of hatred towards gospel Christians. He let them know how, how grateful he was for them, how useful they were. Because the devil was saying to them, they're failures. They're useless. They're rubbish. Maybe a, a person most eminent in the gospel work he feels that. I had a, a hero when I was a student. He was a, a pastor in uh, Sandfields, and his name was John Thomas. And oh, I thought he was a terrific preacher and a, a great man. And I had some meetings in Cardiff University, and uh, he came and he did three nights there on Christian discipleship. And uh, I met him in the common room. We had a cup of tea before the meeting started. And he said to me how the previous morning he hadn't preached very well at all. And, and this lady came on to him and she shook his hand as she was leaving the church. She said, oh, Mr. Thomas, you're a born preacher. Now that's absolute cliche language, isn't it? And I wouldn't think that a man of his gifts and passion and godliness would need uh, the cliché of a little old lady in the congregation. But it meant so much to him because he felt he, he, had, he had failed. And uh, she was able then, with that phrase, just that he repeated it to me, a student, the following day. Well, now, that's what the Lord did. And that's how uh, we've got to help one another. Elijah had the most magnificent time on Mount Carmel, didn't he? The fire fell. He prayed one prayer, and boom! The sacrifice and the wood and the water in the trench all licked up by the flaming power of God, acknowledging that uh, this was the truth and the way. You'd, thought, you'd think that um, Elijah will never be discouraged again. <laughs> but after that wonderful triumph, the threat of Jezebel was enough to send him down and running out and off and outside the promised land and exhausted in a wilderness and lying down in, under a juniper tree and so that God needs to say to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? You know, it's okay to take pains to keep each other humble. I think 
that that is the Lord's work. I think that is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. To bring a counterpoise to the natural way we look for praise and to, to, to keep us low. And it's our work to humble ourselves, to remind ourselves that every virtue we possess is his alone. But you never read in the Bible, you humiliate them. You never read that. But you do read, take pride in, in someone's high estate. The fifth thing um, that we can do to uh, encourage one another is to spur one another on to love and good works. And that's what it is, isn't it? Verse 24, let us consider how, how we may, how can we spur one another on towards love and, and good deeds? Stimulate and, and energize and invigorate. Uh, put pressure on them. Come on now, come on, come on brothers. Somebody has an idea for reaching out, for doing something, some inventiveness, some work that they can do. Who, who gave them permission to do that? Uh, who, who's in control of this? What of this problem from that? And what of that problem? And too many will pour cold water, and before you know where you are, it's quite impossible for this work to go on. Everyone knows the difficulties of these things and uh, it just costs too much and there's no fruit and so on and it's not long before the thing is dead in the water. It couldn't survive a, a church meeting. Uh, three people publicly pointing out the problems uh, which we would have. It's killed by a ministry of discouragement. Well, can we reverse that? And can we spur one another on? Go on, brother. Go on, sister. Hang on there. Good on you. I'm praying for you. Uh, here's some money. Uh, you, you buy some leaflets for yourself now. If someone has uh, some plan, they're going to do it for the kingdom of God. Then we'll encourage them to do that. We'll stimulate them. We'll try and help them in every possible way. Let's not be dampeners. Let's not be uh, protagonists of pessimists and unbelief. Uh, don't let's say all the time, well, it won't work. It has worked. And if we go forth in dependence on the Lord, and if we are, if we are looking to him to help us, why shouldn't it work? Stimulate one another. That's what he says. How we may spur one another on towards love and good works. And then, sixthly, let us not give up meeting together. Verse 25, let us not give up meeting together. There it is. And so this man sees the gatherings of God's people. He sees them as in order to encouragement. We, we come here on a Sunday night, don't we, and we... We sing some new hymns and some great old hymns. And uh, I, I pray feelingly on your behalf. And I teach you and we gather on the Lord's table. And the purpose of all of this is encouragement. Making the Lord's people feel they matter. 
that they are competent, important even. That that's what our gatherings are all about. It's a tremendous challenge to me and to anyone who leads public worship of God, or organizes uh, assemblies of God's people. Um, you know, there are all sorts of assemblies, aren't there? Downstairs over a cup of, of coffee and out, outstairs, outside in the vestibule. There was a man and he was, uh, he said to Douglas Macmillan that um, he had come to faith, really, at uh, a meeting where Douglas Macmillan was speaking. And so Douglas was sort of shucks and, oh dear, oh well. Oh, it wasn't you, he said. It was the man who welcomed me at the door and spoke to me at that meeting. He had really such an impact on my life. In every interpersonal encounter, our concern is to edify with words that the purpose of Christian fellowship is encouragement. You know, in the New Testament, uh, believers are not said to come together to uh, worship God, but to teach one another and apply the word of God to one another and above all, to encourage one another. They were facing so much discouragement. There was no encouragement to be a Christian in the world, in the office, in college, in tutorials. You didn't get words of encouragement. This, this is the place. These gatherings. Help me feel at the end. Yeah, I can go on as a Christian. I can. Uh, the, the struggle is worthwhile. That I can achieve something for God. That's why we meet on a Sunday. That's why we meet on a Tuesday evening at half past seven. And we share one another uh, with one another. And we get mail from one another. And they, they're telling us, we, we, we want your prayers. We want you to know that we appreciate you praying for us. So, th- that's the ministry. I'm finishing now. That's the the ministry that we are to have. It's very prominent in the New Testament, and I've showed you where it is, and then I've told you the ways in which we can watch how we communicate with one another. We can consider, think about one another, and how we can help one another. We can comfort and console one another. We can take pride in our high position in Christ. We can spur one another on to love. We and not stop meeting together. That's what God is asking us to do. That's the, the dynamics of a, a gospel church of the body of Christ. And whose responsibility is this? Well, it's not just my responsibility. It is. And that's what you're thinking. Well, you're wrong. It's the responsibility of every single Christian. And so he says, encourage one another and build each other up, just in, as in fact you are doing. That's what Paul says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. You're doing it, he says. Don't stop. And that's what I'm saying. You're doing it. Many, many of you are doing it. So don't stop. Go on encouraging. Encourage the timid and the weak and the faint-hearted. Be patient with everyone. All of you do it. It's a ministry that is desperately needed in these days. You don't need special training for it. You don't need a BA in biblical studies. 
You don't need any special uh, counseling training for it, but you you don't need a, to go to seminary. But you need to be a Christian. You need Christian common sense and and prudence and uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You need to know the Word of God. And we owe it to one another. Not simply then, not to be discouraged, not to be warriors. That's okay. But positively now to have a ministry of encouragement to one another. Lord, bless your word to us and give us such a ministry, we pray. Help us in our lives to think of one another. Bless thee that our burdens have been lifted. Our mission is so clear now to serve thee and to deem other people so much better, to think that they're so much better than we are. And how can we help them? And we pray, Lord, that you'll give us wisdom and discernment and opportunity and bless every stammering tongue here to that end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.